Hey, listeners, we have a very special episode for you today. We have a room full of experts and a room full of curious people. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh huh. So I'm the curious one. This is Tanner Winterhoff. This is Corey Hillebo. Snarkosaurus. Delaney Howell. So as you will recognize these voices, they have been proud members of the Farm for Profit podcast episodes in our past. They also have uh, their own spaces. So we are doing a crossover episode that is going to be played on multiple channels. It is on TikTok Live. It is in Twitter spaces right now. But ultimately, this is not our normal schedule on the Farm for Profit podcast. This is not, Delaney, the normal schedule for you on Ag News Daily. it's not. This is important because we are going to be talking about what is going on in Ukraine. We are living history right now. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and that is a very large issue on a lot of fronts. Delaney, you've been handling this on Ag News Daily, daily, and uh, the markets have been up. It's been a roller coaster of markets today or this week. Uh, What are your thoughts on it? Well, so I think it's interesting. This week is really the height of all of these components coming together. We've been teasing that Russia would invade Ukraine, what, since at least the beginning of February, if not before that. And we're at a weird time right now. We might be on the verge of, I don't want to say World War III, but that's kind of lingering in the back of my mind when you think about what's going on with China and Taiwan. You look at the bloodbath this week in commodity markets. There's a lot to unpack, and I think that's really why we've decided to come together. We've got some smart smart ideas, smart people in the room to say, here's what's going on, here's what you need to be aware of from a trading perspective, a financial perspective, whatever. So, so Corey, when are we recording this? This is Friday afternoon, February 25th. So it is currently 4.30. Central time. Central time, which would be like 11.30, I think, Ukrainian. I think before I came here, they were getting bombed again at, how do you say it, Kiev? Yeah, Kiev. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, just to add a little bit of color before we get into the height of this week in particular, um, I did a lot of research leading up to this event just because I was curious why does Russia pick this interesting time? There is actually a historical reason why they pick the Olympics to invade other countries. So I was doing some digging a couple weeks ago and Russia's actually done this. It's called a diversionary tactic and I'm not going to pretend to be a military person. I'm not, but this is just what I've heard from the reading. They specifically choose Olympic times to invade other countries. Most frequently it's been Ukraine because it's a diversion. We've got a lot of focus on the world front on these Olympic events. So Russia has been known since about 1979, when they first invaded Afghanistan, to do this very frequently during, especially the Winter Olympics. They've done it in uh, 2008, 2015. 2014, Crimea, yeah, right? 2015, because, uh, 2014, I'm sorry, yeah. you're right. And in, in 2014, they were in, this. the Olympics were in Sochi, and I didn't realize mm-hmm. this at the time, but I was actually studying abroad in Bulgaria, which is one country over basically from Ukraine. I had yeah. Russian roommates. Uh, there were about 44 different nationalities represented at the University of Bulgaria that I was at. And so we were seeing this play out. And I, I think at the time I was a college student, so I didn't realize the impact or importance of this event. But there were many times where I would see classmates upset and talking about these issues during class because there's been this longstanding history of Russia bullying other countries and using it for political gains, especially during 
the World Olympics. That's interesting. And I would say up until this event, my poor knowledge of geography mm-hmm. has really grown to one, develop what the size of Ukraine is, and two, to develop where Ukraine is located and the countries that are around it. Do either one of you have uh, a good way of describing that to those listening? Yeah, absolutely. So Ukraine is southeastern Europe. So we're talking post-Soviet. It was obviously part of the bloc, I think, until 91 or 92. So we're talking really post-Soviet borders, Russia, Bulgaria, I believe, Turkey is on one portion of that as well. Romania, Romania, Moldova, Macedonia, States, all of those poor countries that are still rebuilding from being in that Soviet bloc are the ones that border Ukraine. So it's still a lot of Russian influence, though. And Ukraine is not in NATO currently. Correct. There's been talks of them coming in, but that's the reason that we are not intervening Directly. I, I think that's part of it. I just read something today, and to be honest, I didn't spend a lot, a lot of time thinking or reading through it, but I saw that the United Nations is meeting, I believe, next week, and they have an important vote ahead of them to kind of decide, as the world, how do we intervene? What do we do next? And I don't believe that Ukraine will be at that, but China will be. And yeah. the, a lot of attention is going to be on how China responds to this, because they're a large trading partner with Ukraine. Um, I believe Ukraine's number one export market for a lot of commodities is China. And China obviously is very buddy-buddy with Russia. And they've been threatening or looming in the background to potentially invade Taiwan. So there's a lot of other geopolitical dominoes that could fall within the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Snark, you had some good insight on your spaces this morning on who Putin is and why he's doing this and the history of that. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. So my father, I got to give you guys a little bit of background color. I'll go as fast as possible. My father is ex-Navy, 26 years, three tours in Vietnam. He graduated college with a printing degree and his draft number was three. And he said, let's join the Navy. And they put him in uh, a riverboat driving up the uh, north you know, up the Hanoi River or whatever it's called. I don't really know, but in there in the Tet Offensive and shot at the bushes as he describes it. That's about all he's ever said about it until I went to Western Nebraska and met a guy that was a gunner in the Black Hawk helicopters. And he's like, yeah, I served with your dad. And I text my dad and he's like, who's asking? Anyways, so from that, he went to Navy Intelligence at the Pentagon in the late 70s, early 80s. We lived in D.C., um, and so having grown up through several of these crises, he has a very interesting take on some of this stuff. Obviously, most of you know by now that Putin's ex-KGB, he was a senior ranking official, and he's, he is actually a Russian imperialist. So one of the reasons that he believes that Ukraine is being invaded is he actually kind of wants to, I, he wants to take over Ukraine. At first, I thought, my initial take on just reading the situation is, much like Crimea, he's going to advance into these now separatist states. So think Oklahoma and Texas arguing because they've been going at it for years and saying, okay, well, we're going to free this area and and let them come back to the Russian Federation. Uh, But this goes back to 1914, Catherine the Great. Um, And I think the goal is to, when he invaded Kiev, that's, that was the real eye opener, right? Everybody thought he was dancing around, he was showing off, maybe he's posturing a lot of theater, right? Who telegraphs an invasion for 15 days with 300,000 troops, tell everybody what's coming. The, I, my father had said, I think his goal is to overtake Ukraine and then threaten the Baltic states and Poland, right? He's trying to get leverage back against NATO. 
Um, and for other, other economic reasons, right? He took Crimea. That's a big port that exports a lot of stuff and really important to the strategic positioning of Russia being, you know, where their ports are at and where they're located to have access to the other part of the world. So he did that successfully in 2014 in those Olympics, right? Same mm-hmm. playbook. He did a deal with China. I read this today, $117 billion or billion, I think. Yeah. For gas and oil with China and, and we, and all the things that China needs, which is food. And then, and then now this invasion. And so we have seen China remain silent. If you watch the Biden presser yesterday, when the reporters, come, when he got through the list of recorded questions and went to actual real people asking questions on the fly, somebody stood up and said, well, what's, what's China's situation in this? Have you talked to Xi? What, what's the story? And he goes, I'm not prepared to answer on that. So that, I think, was a sign of weakness from our president. And it's really interesting geopolitical situation in a sense of sanctions can take this out, but he may not care about sanctions right now. And I think that's where a lot of people underestimate him. Who knows what his agenda is? He's a madman. He's a dictator. Uh, He does what he wants. He rules with an iron fist. And up until yesterday, I mean, you can't literally even take pictures, post them on social media and, and critique the Kremlin. So... This has been a fascinating geopolitical event on a lot of fronts. Uh, my father brings an interesting insight, uh, having dealt with the Cold War and, and you know, pre-Reagan and then post-Reagan. And um, one of the things that we've all kind of gone with, because obviously Russia is not a very strong, powerful economy, but they are very strong uh, as a nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And having nukes uh, is a threat to everybody in the world, especially Greta for her carbon <laughs> footprint deal. <laughs> Because I'd hate to see what climate change does with that. That's neither here nor there. Uh, that will be the only time I mention that, I promise, until the next time. <laughs> but the, the big issue he brought up is Russia has upgraded their military dramatically over the last, since 2014, while the U.S. has been fighting wars. We've been fighting wars in Afghanistan, the Middle East, etc. We've been trying our own deal to keep the peace in Iraq, etc. Finally, that's come to an end, thankfully. Um, but it's a very difficult to occupy another country that is far away from your own. So that was the big issue he had at being a, a rush, uh, being a military expert, you know, at the Pentagon, one of the big challenges in mobilizing a massive force is keeping the supply chain behind it, right? These tanks run on fuel, they run on oil, they have mechanics, they have all kinds of things. Every time those planes go up, they need to be worked on for a minute before they can do another sortie and reload with missiles, et cetera. He thinks there's less than a, there's a 90% chance this lasts less than 60 days, 50% less than 30 days, and 20% less than 15 days. His analysis of it, much like Hitler in World War II, he had to take France in 30 days or less. So to move that big of an army that far that fast, you don't have time to bog down and fight guerrilla warfare. And so that's kind of what we've seen so far. Um, his take on it earlier today when I spoke with him is he's like, he really has to take this in the next six to nine days. So, so that gives me, you a little bit of color. Let me put in a quick pause because we do have some extra people tuning in with us on TikTok. Thank cool. you. And Hi. also Twitter spaces. We're just doing a quick special episode weekend edition. This is going to drop on the Ag News Daily podcast as well as the Farm for Profit podcast. We've got Rupert Williams, Snarkosaurus on Twitter joining us as well as Corey Hillebo and Tanner Winterhoff from the Farm for Profit podcast. Guys, if you have questions, shoot one of us a DM. We're monitoring our social media. We're going to get this posted hopefully later this afternoon on 
all of our podcasting platforms, but there's a lot to unpack. So we really appreciate you guys tuning in with us. And Corey, I'll turn it back to you. So I'm going to jump oh, in. Tanner, there we go. Yep, Tanner's going to jump in. So uh, nothing like referring to yourself in the third person. But, <laughs> but a couple of things that you said, Snark, during this, this time period is you referred to NATO. And not everybody's going to understand what NATO is. So I just want to get that out there. It's the North Atlantic Treaty Treaty Organization, also known as the North Atlantic Alliance. And that's 28 European countries and two North American countries that are aligned, Mm -hmm. that that are together. Canada is the other one. Yep. So so that's why it's important in Putin's eyes for Ukraine to not join. It Mm -hmm. it becomes a network of of support and and continue to rally around. Um, well, one of the things in that real quick, Tanner, is if, yeah. if, if you invade a NATO country, they all invade. So it's, it's like one versus all of them. They Article started this 5. After, Al- yeah. Allies on your yeah, team. They started all, yeah, out, they started this after World War II to prevent another world war. Uh, I don't know when it started, maybe late six, in the 60s or 70s, somewhere in there. Uh, U.S. is obviously the big bully in that, that whole group. Um, and that has evolved and so far worked. But having this has been a big deal with Ukraine and this is a big threat to Russia because they don't want a NATO on their border because then they could line everybody up and do the same thing he's doing. Yep. So that may be part of it. I, I'm sure that is, but this seems a little aggressive for that because we're seeking peace, not the other way around. And then secondly, we talked about location, where Ukraine is. Uh, but I, I saw a tweet from Max Armstrong that puts it puts Ukraine on the United States. And if you can visualize you know, stemming through Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, it, that's kind of the size that you're looking at. It's basically from our eastern coast, comes back across Indiana, a little bit into Illinois, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly is not a substantially sized country, but it is the second largest country it, in Europe. It's, and it's it ranks top 10 for a lot of important commodities, not just in the ag space, but also um, uranium, titanium, you know, corn, soybeans, eggs, I noticed potatoes were on the list as well. So it ranks top 10 for a lot of really important commodities that need to go elsewhere. And so if we see continued shutdowns, we saw that Cargill uh, ship, cargo ship that was attacked or first Mm -hmm. non-Ukraine ship that was attacked, we're going to see a lot of influx or just flux on the world market of commodities that now need to be sourced elsewhere. So I think I mentioned earlier, you know, China sources a lot of corn and commodities from Ukraine. If borders are shut down, if they can't get crops out, if they can't get into the field because there are now other things they have to deal with, we're going to see a large shift in supply and demand on the global front. And I think that's really a good segue maybe to talk about commodity markets, Rupert, and why we saw the volatility we did this week is just some of those factors that are going on in the background. Well, that's, it's a great comment, right? Like Ukraine is number three, number four, depending on who you listen to exporter of corn. I think to put it in perspective, Tanner said how, how big it is. Someone described it to me as it has one of the largest uh, black soil or organic mm-hmm. matter um, it's so very like fertile, Iowa. so it's like the Midwest. Yeah. And that's why it's so important it's the for Midwest agriculture. Of Eurasia. And that's why it's I think it's like also so top much. ten for black fertile soil, most arable land with mm-hmm. black soil. It's in it's you know, you think when you think about this is a side tangent, but when you think about like US competition, we're always focusing on South America, Brazil and Argentina, but Ukraine is in the top five competitors that we have 
on a world market too. And it's one that I think gets forgotten about. Yep. I actually have some stats on that from Mike Lee, Agronomy Ukraine. Great follow. I followed for years as far as what's going on in that market as a trader. And he said the current forecast is 37 million metric tons with 7 million metric tons of corn uh, being used domestically and 30 million metric tons exported through the 22-23 marketing year. Their planting season is April and May. Um, that could drop to zero if obviously farmers can't get in there and they're fighting a war on all their land. I mean, I know that Bush Light Combine has (laughs) missiles attached, but apparently that's a thing. But a middle ground, he thought, might be fewer hectares and possibly giving a crop of 19 million metric tons and exports down to 12 million. So if you go from 30 million to 12 million, right, that's a 60% drop or so. That is very significant. And then that's got to be sourced elsewhere. I think that's one of the reasons you saw China come out this week and say, we're going to plant all the corn and beans, et cetera, we can. In in the event that this is escalated and goes on longer, uh, that has a dramatic effect on world markets. And and that's why you saw wheat explode and go absolutely supersonic this week. Uh, Or as we say on the trading floor, rocket to Russia. Uh, We never thought that actually would be a pun intended, but in this case it is. Right. Um, Uppy on TikTok had a question before we get too much into the markets. If Ukraine does not fall in seven days, does Putin... Uh, bring in nuclear? Okay, so great question. So this is actually a punch or be punch. So when Reagan took over, my father told me this story this morning, and this has actually been great because we don't talk that much. And this, we actually talk every day now. So that's it's like having a father at 70. And I'm 44. So it's nice to start building that relationship now better late than never. But he had a great comment about why the Cold War ended and, and some of the segue into that. Um, when when Reagan took office, there was an idea that mutually assured destruction was the reason everybody stopped. But in a nuclear war, if somebody launches at you first, you may not be alive to launch second. Mm-hmm. Right now, missiles move a lot faster. I think even North Korea can hit San Francisco in 30 minutes. However, the thought was, and that's why he said there's probably less than 5% chance of a nuclear war. And because nobody wants that. But in the event that something like that happens... I said, well, what would you do in that scenario? He said, well, you've got to annihilate them first, which is sad as that says, if you've studied uh, European history and world history and World War II, that was one of the decisions. Instead of invading mainland Japan, we took out a lot of their people and set them back decades, and we ended the war immediately. The war ended the next day. Uh, after the second bomb dropped, I believe, somebody somebody will quote it on TikTok and know the answer to that. But. Mm-hmm. It ends very quickly. And I said, well, how would that work? He's like, well, you would just launch a nuke into Moscow and you launch a nuke onto their forces, which they're all consolidated right now. And a lot of people would die, but it would all end dramatically very quickly. And that would be very tragic and very sad. So I don't think Putin wants that, um, but he's in a very dangerous spot right now. And he's a very dangerous human, much like Kim Jong-un. Playing around with nukes is not funny. And there's a scenario here that I saw that I was talking about with a guy, a producer. And what's interesting about this war specifically is one, it's all over social media, TikTok. Yeah. And that's been, I'm going to hop in for a second. Yeah, that's been it. the thing that's so different about this war or it's not a war. So I don't want to use that term. It's conflict. Lucy. Yeah. This conflict is, this is so different from a media perspective is you think back to even like the Afghanistan war, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the ability to share, I'm going to say our stories on such a wide scale. And you know, you go on Twitter, you go on Facebook, you go on any sort of social media site. You have a farmer from Ukraine. You said that you were watching share videos and share things that are literally we happening were DMing. in your eyes. We were DMing. It wasn't like, yeah, we were talking. He's, he said he enlisted in the army 
and he's DMing me. And then uh, Fox on the way way in, I was seeing before I came in, uh, they were saying uh, Russian soldiers are being taken as uh, prisoners of war, getting lost in town, and they're like watching TikTok on their phones. Well, it's interesting to <laughs> like, think about. They right? don't know how um, it's dedicated they are. Well, and, and you think about it too. I don't know if anybody saw the the island. Uh, that Snake was Island. Yeah, Snake Island is what it's called. And there's 13 Ukrainian soldiers on there, and a Russian warship says, uh, surrender, we're going to blow you up. And the guy turns to the other guy and goes, should we tell him to Go GFY, die yeah. ag? And the guy goes, might as well. And uh, he goes, this is your last chance, yes or no. And he said, GFY, dot ag. He left the dot ag. That's a shameless plug. <laughs> but he said GFY, and then they blew him away. I think this is their Alamo. So it's very different when you've got one country invading another that, that they don't know why they're there. I mean, you think about why when we were in Afghanistan, obviously September 11th, some of you guys were too young to remember that. And you have this invasion in Iraq. Well, now all of a sudden you've got U.S. Army that have enlisted because, you know, army, whatever they're, see the war. No, that's the Navy, see the world, whatever it is. And now all of a sudden they're fighting a war they don't care about. They don't know anybody. And why are we here? Mm -hmm. And in this case, you got a lot of Russian and Ukrainians that have family in Ukraine or former Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc, whatever. And there's a very strong Russian nationalist group in Eastern Ukraine that may have migrated to Ukraine for whatever reason, but they still yeah, through jobs. and through are Russian. Yeah. And so now you've kind of got brother against brother. This is almost like a sort a of a civil war. war. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and and to me, that's what's so interesting about this is I saw that that report of, you know, 18 year olds kind of like you said, they've been conscripted. They have 300,000 people in their military. They're not all en enlisted on their own. They're kind of forced into it. They don't have nothing else going on. And they go, wait, we didn't know we were going to go fight. Now, I don't know how true all the, there's as much misinformation out there and propaganda on both sides. But if you think about if if. If Putin sends in 300,000 troops thinking he's just going to roll over Kiev, and all of a sudden that doesn't happen, and these people start watching TikTok videos of Uppy or somebody else that's watching at home, and they go, wait, that's my friend. I'm not going to shoot that guy. And we have a different culture now. We have a world that, you know, young people, all of you in this room, I'm 44, you guys are sub 30, but it's a different world between our generations. I barely know how to change a home screen on my phone and they grew up with technology. They have friends all over the world. Now all of a sudden this changes things when you start thinking about the impact of what you're doing. And and he could have underestimated that. So I just want a quick recap for those of you tuning in with us on Twitter or TikTok. This is a Farm for Profit slash Ag News Daily slash Go Farm Yourself special edition podcast dropping later today. We appreciate those of you that are tuning in live with us. But Rupert, I want to add something to what you just mentioned. Um, when you look at the difference that we see in this war Remind me what you're talking about, because now I've forgotten my train of thought. Okay, so the difference in this war is, is there's social media. We didn't have any of this before. I mean, I was watching a video today of a guy driving through, stopping at a red light where there's missiles flying at him, and then everyone's like, well, the video is wrong, it's just 21. Well, he probably didn't set the, the, the date and time on it because he didn't care, but today's date was the actual date. And now us at home in America are affected by that because we can actually watch it or wherever you're listening from around the world. The thing is, now all of a sudden, you've got the whole world watching. You're seeing the tragedy of war right in front of your face. I'm sure you guys all saw that plane that was launching yeah. stuff into a farmhouse or whatever they were blowing up. And you start seeing it firsthand. Well, this this goes away from Top Gun and the sensationalism of Rambo First Blood Part 2, 3, whatever. Great 
great movie back in the day. <laughs> but or Platoon, this becomes very real. Imagine watching Vietnam in real time and you would see all the tragedy that was happening to all these villages and everything else. Well, that changes world opinion really fast. Somebody I was talking to earlier today about the draft. Uh, my father's draft number was like three. He had graduated college, so he had no exemption. And they were picking people up on buses right as they got out of school. I mean, it was chaos. Well, nobody actually saw that. It was just like the people that were witnessing saw it, and then they didn't text back home, you'll never believe this, and here's a video of it. Well, now people are watching this. The whole world's watching, and that changes sentiment. And that jogged my memory, so thank you. So <laughs> I think the other thing is that I've read a lot about was you shared the percentage of how quickly this thing ends and the likelihood that that happens. And maybe we can recap that again here for those people that are just tuning in with us. But the other thing that I have been reading just a little bit on enough to make me dangerous, um, this I think was put out by Jim Wiesmeyer with Farm Journal. He was kind of going through the policy side of it. Like how does this thing end and how do we do it in a way that doesn't get all of those people that are drafted and listed mm -hmm. that didn't want to be, didn't sign up for it. How do we get them peacefully to a resolution and so he was kind of prefacing it with the idea that the maybe nonviolent way to get that done is to attack China's SWIFT system. So hmm. I just listened to a podcast on this the other day on Planet Money talking about the SWIFT system. And SWIFT is basically, all caps, I uh, believe it was started in Belgium, but is it is the largest international. international banking system. So if I, U.S., want to send money to Bangladesh or Ukraine or wherever, or, me, or, me. or you, it's the safest way globally to exchange money bonds let's put safest I mean, maybe in without bitcoin no blockchain wire. system yeah. and it's been Correct. hacked that's right um it's, it's how much it's how banks exchange money, right and, and so he was prefacing that perhaps the way we get this thing done is basically to cut russia off at its legs and somehow you know well, uh, take them off of the swift. I didn't, I don't know exactly. Well, so I can expound on that. I was watching the Biden presser and, and, and a columnist asked that question in DC and it was a great comment, right? My friends are bankers. I have a friend here that's an ex banker and, um, I don't really like bankers, but that's not here nor there. The swift system is incredible in a sense of it's the pre blockchain to banks exchanging money. It's been, it's antiquated, but it works. And if you cut off, if you cut off somebody from Swift, you're basically saying, I don't have any cash and I'm going to go to the bar or wherever, sorry, uh, convenience store and I'm going to buy something and I try to use my chip card, it's not working. Well, all of a sudden, all these balance of payments that Russia has, they can't pay anybody. You cut them off from the system immediately, all of a sudden you cut off all their funding everywhere. So now it's done on credit, IOUs, et cetera, and then you find out who their real allies are, right? And, and Biden was pressed on this after he got through his list of pre-post questions that he knew the answers to and he blamed germany cyprus hungary etc and yet the u.s is the biggest player in that and we probably could push the buttons on that to turn them off and we didn't i asked that question on twitter yesterday some people responded well germany's still buying oil from russia on pre-arranged deals and all this stuff and they need to get paid you know everybody needs to get paid and and now India came out today also and is, is enabling them to go through them. So now you're starting to see who the real allies are. I th thought the Indian news was absolutely shocking because they typically are a neutral country, albeit a nuclear power. They don't have a big military and they depend on other people playing nice with them. That being said, you cut that off immediately. You cut them off at the legs and they wouldn't do it. And that was what's so frustrating about these sanctions is, yeah, you froze VBT, the second biggest bank in 
in, in Russia froze all their assets. You're not stealing their assets. You're freezing them. So, you know, Canada will commandeer you for being a trucker and honking. Yeah. But we, a guy invades another country to try and take it over and we won't cut them off. To me, that was disgusting. That has to happen. Um, and I think that that brings Putin to make a real decision very fast. I think what he knows right now is the West leadership across the board. This isn't just the U.S. You're talking about a whole coalition of countries that is afraid to do the things they need to do. And that's what we're seeing right now. And when he said, when he finds out it's sanctions and then he finds out it's not that, well, let's roll, you know, let's roll coal. Let's just send it. And that's, that's what you're seeing right now is an invasion that he's not afraid of it at this point. Yeah. So sanctions are essentially freezing the assets and. Well, you cut them off from the, the, so one of the things that, so, London Street has been where people Columbus funded his his voyage to America. All of this It's where the financiers lived from, you know, the 14, 15, 1600s. It's a fascinating story about all this. But if you cut off Russia's ability to raise money, leverage debt, whatever issue bonds, do all kinds of things, whether it's oligarchs or billionaires. So they're run by a country of billionaires and then really poor people. And if you cut off all of them immediately, all of a sudden you've got a different situation now. Now you've got them the rich people that typically run a lot of these things behind the scenes without anybody knowing whether that's the U S or anywhere else that are really experiencing a lot of pain. But the one wild card I think is let's just say we do cut them off or we start to make those moves to have happen. We don't know the wild card is China. We don't know what they're going to do. And we've heard, I'm sure we've all heard rumors or, allegations that perhaps China would use this as an opportunity to invade Taiwan. And then what does that do to change the global scene? So I, I, I pulled this email up. A reporter friend of mine emailed me this. Um, Governor Branstead was at Iowa State campus about a week, week and a half ago, and was pressed on this issue. And of course, this is pre-invasion, but he was pressed on this issue to say, oh, wow. will China use this as an opportunity to invade Taiwan? And he said, I'm just going to read this or paraphrase this a little bit, but he said that China's goal has always been to reunite Taiwan with the mainland. All the way back to 41. Absolutely. And China's leaders have always thought of Taiwan as a long-term goal. So he said that the National People's Congress is gearing up to reappoint a president, and Xi is obviously still the likely candidate, so that has its own separate geopolitical issues in itself. But he said that, China's likely to expedite the goal of taking Taiwan back. And he said this, Russia, Ukraine's tensions are likely going to be a trigger point for when that happens. It's already happening. I mean, I talked to Snark yesterday. My biggest fear is China taking over Taiwan because of the weakness that's going on in the world. This morning, headlines, I texted Snark at 6.30 this morning. uh, China's flying jets over Taiwan airspace and posturing, and they... China blamed the U.S. for uh, Russia's invasion. For sending 5,000 troops or something like that to the border and some yeah. tanks. So, and that's, I, to me, that was why markets tanked today, or that's what I, knee-jerk reaction there. But if China goes, that's a bad problem because we need them for trading. Well, that's a that's a really big problem. In fact, it's interesting that Brandt said, said that, obviously, he was ambassador to China. My father brought that up two days ago. He said, well, China's wanted Taiwan since 1941. Right. They they separated. And and when they fought their war, that's kind of where they all congregated and they haven't been able to grab it back. 
Uh, Taiwan is very strategic from a port perspective, from an imports perspective. A lot of our beef from the Midwest goes through Taiwan first to mainland China through back doors. Um, and that's why you saw the beef markets tank uh, also with this. And it was like, well, that's kind of a weird reaction. Grains are supersonic and feed costs are getting more expensive and, and, and pork and beef went lower. Why wouldn't they just follow grains, right? If this is if this is what this is all about, and so I actually think I don't know if this is orchestrated. I don't want to get too tinfoily, although it would keep me warmer here in Iowa. Is you've got? I think you've got a situation here where this potentially is an orchestrated move. If you start looking at all the pieces behind, and let's let's say we're not insiders, which I'm definitely not, but you start watching how these dominoes are falling, and then this invasion that's actually happening, and it's taking the whole world off China, Taiwan. What if the whole play was Russia invades, causes a distraction, moves back to these separatist parts, annexes them just like they did Crimea or have a fake vote or whatever, and China takes Taiwan. Uh, I've said this multiple times on Spaces the last couple of days. Going back to, I don't know the year, but let's say it's in the last like 10, 12 years, China has been building uh, – man-made islands in the South China Sea that starts at Taiwan and then all the way around to Singapore. And that's one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Well, now all of a sudden, if they put a barrier of islands, think about it like a toll booth, they control the most powerful shipping lanes. All of a sudden they control the world's trade. Well, that's a big strategic economic weapon that they can then use to shut that off if they need to. First, they just build the islands. And then this was in the economist years ago. I remember reading about it before they, you know, they went downhill and I had to cancel my subscription. That's neither here nor there, a separate podcast. But they also said that they, you know, the next step was to weaponize them. Okay. So you put missile bases on that. Now all of a sudden you make it very difficult for a Navy, which is moves very slowly to go through there. Right. So the U S Pacific fleet has been there forever trying to patrol it while they're building these things. Now this is a breakdown in foreign policy going back years. Right. So this is what happens when you have no foreign policy going back to 2010. Well, all of these things have been set in place and now all of a sudden this is happening and we're all like, what happened? So that to me, that to me seems like an obvious thing. Obviously that has massive ripple effects for the U S uh, agricultural system, given how much we export, um, especially pork, you know, China's got 1.6 billion people and they all eat pork. So if we could just get them to eat beef, shameless plug, <laughs> the beef market could go supersonic and then feeders could return to buy or cry. So the interesting side as the banker in the room is, is the, the exact situation of where we thought the United States economy was headed with inflation. Mm-hmm. Mm. And what that was going to do from the Federal Reserve in order to boost interest rates to halt or stifle or whatever word you want to use to try and control inflation. And if this act from both Russia and China create a different trajectory for the United States economy, that could alter interest rate hikes, which could either send inflation skyrocketing Mm -hmm. because we we don't have the confidence to try to stifle that. And well, we don't have the manufacturing base anymore. Right. So, so you look at the way that this could affect our economy, but I'm curious, Corey, on the farm side, because that's the majority of the people that we're talking to right now, Friday afternoon, early evening, as we put this special project together between Ag News Daily and Farm for Profit and GFY.ag. What, you're sitting here. You quit doing what you were doing today to come in and be on the mics because you thought it was important, but why? 
Well, first of all, I was gladly quitting what I was doing because <laughs> pigs are not very healthy right now. <laughs> uh, but I'm just generally interested. Uh, markets have been an emotional roller coaster. Um, they're worse than uh, Snark's ginger this week. She loves you until she hates you until she loves you. It's been love and hate all week. I mean, one one day you're rich, the next day you're just losing it all. Um, where are we going to go? Yeah, I can attest for losing it all. We made a minor miscalculation because we were also watching this and thinking, how can we get involved in this at the time? How can we get involved in this short-term pop? And I was looking at, you know, some option strategies using this as a short-term gamble. Like let's get in, get out, make some quick money and be done. Um, and we bought two May corn calls on Thursday morning at the open and they did the exact opposite of what we wanted them to do. So Ruber and I were talking a little bit before we got in the mics about like, how do we, how do we as producers take advantage of this? Like, when do we buy in? Do we buy in? Is this a short term dip? Are we going to see this reverse back the other way? And I personally think this is short term market confusion, but how do we, how do we see this thing play out? So can we talk about ginger now or should we talk about just in general market? Yeah, in general. What you do think you think it's short term yeah. up or down? Or just so I, I think, think short term down. I think short term down. Uh, I think the situation, depending on how it gets resolved, depending on if it drags out back to what we said, if they don't get into the fields, let's say this goes. I was doing in my head a little quick math on the averages of the percentages that I'd said earlier, about 60, 30 and 15 days. And that puts it right at like 26, 27 days. Okay. Well, 27 days from now is still March. Let's say it goes on longer. Let's say they don't get the crop in the field. Now all of a sudden Ukraine's reduced to, uh, just producing for their own country. Well, now that that global demand shifts elsewhere, period. A lot of their wheat, a lot of their corn goes to the middle East. Uh, and you know, you put a lot of supply constraints and that's why you saw wheat go supersonic this week. Well, what happens if we cut off Russia? What happens if China doesn't buy it? China's probably buying it. I think that's part of the deal that they probably knew ahead of time um, and buys all the corn out of Ukraine if if Russia commandeers it, right? Well, that puts pressure. That has a massive ripple effects worldwide on what happens next. We don't know that, right? I'm hoping this is over by the time this podcast gets released and and you know, Sunday or Monday, we're doing another one that says, okay, it's all over. And this is what happened. And this is where we go from here. However, given the tight balance sheets that we have in these markets and how we've cleaned up balance sheets over the last few years, we have massive volatility. That's all there is. There will be volatility this year, no matter what, whether it's a weather event, whether it's a geopolitical event, whether it's a supply demand event, we've got an issue with the South American crop, uh, the U S crop, we have no idea at this point. And we've got producers with diamond hands, right? People that have already sold have sold and they've sold out. And I was talking to a producer in Western Illinois this morning and he goes, I need $8 corn for the rest of this to get to 550 and yeah. the market's 650. Okay. Well, and it was $7. I'm not telling him what to do. That's why it's called go farm yourself. But it was an interesting comment that he sold what he needed to sell, made a bunch of money last year, but is missed out on the rest. And he's sitting here like the rest of us going, well, you can pry this out of my cold dead hands. So, the real question is, is does, does China get involved in this? Does China escalate tensions? And then that creates new round of sanctions, which obviously we know are going to be ag-related. And I think that's what the market was doing today. I think what's scary right now with markets is you had this massive run-up in, in late January, or beginning of February, which is coinciding with this mobilization of this military. 
it's easy to look back and say now, and I think this is pretty obvious. Anybody that's been involved with markets, there's obviously people that know more than everybody else. And all of a sudden, we took off for nine days, and beans went from $14 to 16 in literally nine days. We're talking two weeks, $2 a bushel. Well, if you're a farmer, you're loving life, and you're wondering what happened, but I'll take it. Then this conflict escalates, and then it's back and forth, and there's headlines every day, and we're up and down, and a lot more volatility, and then... Uh, the market goes kind of sideways for a week and a half. And then all of a sudden there's an invasion this week. And that's what you saw. You saw this explosion in price. And one of those things, one of the things about something like this, that's not programmed in, it's not on the schedule. It forces everybody in the market, whether you're a commercial or producer, an end user, uh, whatever that's involved in ag markets, you have to buy, sell or do nothing. You either sit on your hands and hold if you're short or you have to buy it back or, as a, as a seller sitting on the last of your grain, you sell it or you don't sell it. It's just everybody has to make a decision. And that's what we saw with markets this week and an incredibly volatile week. Um, and so I don't know if that plays into the answer of that, but all I know from here is this is a very dynamic situation and it's important to be flexible. So buying calls is not necessarily a bad idea. Um, we had this massive up move. And the way markets top, markets job is to inflict the most pain on the weakest hands at all times. So when That's we Delaney's when we first yeah. <laughs> had when we first had this announcement on you know Monday or whatever Tuesday, markets screamed higher, and they should. If this goes on for a long time, if there's some sort of more escalation of war, if China gets involved in it, who knows where this is going? Well, we're one of the biggest food suppliers in the world. Uh, people have to come to us. Well, that, that, that could put corn at any price. That could put soybeans at any price. In a world now where it's mostly high-frequency trading and algorithms that make decisions, they have no conscience. They buy until people stop buying, and they sell until people stop selling. And then the market balances out, and you get this kind of battle zone where you go sideways again, and then the market comes back into balance. And then it either goes up again from there, or it goes down. So we're just going to be in a, a pattern of really volatile price action for, I mean, it, I know every broker, analyst, trader hates putting a time frame on things because you can't really ever tell that. But what are what should farmers or producers be watching for to say, okay, that volatility is starting to be traded out of the market? Right. So uh, as a former CBOT floor options trader in corn, wheat, soybeans, cattle, hogs, uh, hogs was only one day. Uh, and then I put it on my ban list, feeder cattle, et cetera. Uh, I always moved to where the action was. So I traded wheat when it went to $12, $13 in the Evan Dooley day in, 0- in 07, I believe it was. I tried to block it out from my mind. And you go where the volatility is. You go where the action is. And, and prices actually start moving in options volatility first and then in spreads. So if there is a demand shock, you will see the front, you'll start to see the carry being taken out of the market. And that's commercials coming to the market saying, I need it now. I'll figure it out later. I'll buy it back from my local producers. I'll push bases out there. I'll entice them to buy. But I need it right now for delivery. We haven't had carry for a long time, it feels like. Well, and what's interesting about this move is you would have thought front month beans would have gone supersonic relative to everything else. And they really didn't. You know, everything kind of just traded with, obviously new crop is a different story, but just in old crop we're talking right now, you didn't see this massive spike in spreads, which I thought was really odd. You know, you had, you had the, 
you had the the May, which is kind of you have March, which is in delivery when like five, six, seven cents over. But you would see that thing if this was a real demand shock, you'd see that thing go 30, 40, 50 over whatever, because that means we don't have it. And you're begging somebody to sell it to you. And that's why you're pushing that price so dramatically to entice you go, well, this is going to be your best price, even if you wait three months. So that didn't happen. We saw these massive moves in markets. We have this trading robot at GoFarmYourself, GFY.ag. Find us on Twitter, GFY underscore ag, uh, where we put out the, the, what the robot does. And what, what she does is she, her name's Ginger. And we, have, we had a couple robots before her, Karen and then Vicky, who was like a personal trainer. And then we had Dick, who doesn't really listen to anything we say, et cetera. And we have like these five algorithms running together. And then you've got... Ginger, who runs over the top, and she kind of reads the path like you're reading a traffic pattern and, and kind of picks an optimal path through all of these things that are working together. And then what she does is she studies that line in relation to historical and relation to the things that we tell her to pay attention to. This, it's been really cool. We've worked on it for eight months. We, I, we did a podcast on talking about it, yep. and we had Karen at the time. We didn't even have Ginger. Is Karen in Ginger? Karen is part of Ginger. So it's a schizoph schizophrenic... AI robot that can channel her personalities. That's right. So she manages multiple personalities. And because of that, what's really interesting though, is we've never seen a sell for new crop beans over all the way back to 08, because I think markets have changed fundamentally since 20, the markets you even had five years ago are not the markets you see today, right? 90, 90% of this is computers. Mm -hmm. They all think the same way. So it becomes this endless group think and all they're doing is, is, expanding the pain and when volatility expands like you asked the range is widened out and the reason the range is widened out is because that it's forcing commercials or or non non bsers as we call them in the pit to make a decision those are the people that really set price in markets and because we don't have humans in the middle with different opinions they all kind of do the same thing until a commercial or somebody steps in with inventory and then they all start doing the same thing the other way. And they don't stop until somebody stops it. So think about it that way. Is there's these gigantic air pockets in the market where price moves from here to here and then picks up velocity. Rupert, I want to ask one more question because I know we're getting close to sure. wrapping things up today. And this is the other question that I think from a farmer producer perspective is going to be an important one because at some price, at some point, high prices cure high prices. And if we do see this shift in global supply and demand, Ukraine gets shut off, China has to go elsewhere, whatever. And let's just say hypothetically, we we see this thing turn back around and prices start to trend back higher. At what point do other international players say we need your commodities so prices then respond right but at some point you know export market the export market's going to say the u.s dollar is too strong prices mm -hmm. are too high uh, how does that play out well, well i think it's a, a question i'm not totally sure where you're going with this but if i think about it i think about it in terms of momentum right you have, you have market forces and you have all these players, you know, Japan had a big buy this week in, in soybeans or in corn, even though prices are high, right? You've got crude oil at 90 bucks. A few years ago, we talked about demand destruction in corn at four or five bucks. Well, ethanol and corn were in crude oil were way lower. Now you've got this global expansion where the economy up until Putin was booming. Global economy, inflation's out of control. Fed was, you know, there was a report out last Sunday that we were going to raise rates nine times in a row. We know we were going to get a 50 basis point hike here in May. 
And that's all to slow this down a little bit, to, to, to tamper down expectations. However, now that you've got this new paradigm, what, what happens to consumer spending, right? Consumer in America specifically drives the whole economy. We start slowing down because we're uncertain about what's happening, or maybe there's a world war, maybe I need to start hoarding cash. Well, the economy slows down immediately. Fed claims victory, doesn't have to raise rates. So I think that's some of what you saw when the market rebounded off um, lows earlier this week is it's like, okay, well now the Fed's not going to raise rates. Well, that's been what has been driving the big sell-off in equities and back into commodities is that inflation out of equities, let's get out of TikTok and all those other things and get into real assets. And now all of a sudden you've got this war. Well, wars are good for certain companies because you have to turn the war machine on, print dollars, and continue this expansion of credit because the government needs to spend a lot of money to keep the war machine going. Well, then you have that coupled with, okay, well, now the Fed's going to slow down policy and go from nine interest rates to, say, four or five, which is now what people are saying. Well, 2% or 1.5% means nothing compared to 3.5%, in short-term interest rates. And so I think that's actually why the market rebounded, even while you saw commodities just sell off dramatically. I mean, if you get a situation with China, et cetera, you, know, you, could, you could see a massive sell-off in commodities, especially from these price levels. In fact, that's a quick segue into Ginger. The, on Wednesday, there was so much momentum up when we were at limit up in wheat and Corn was bid in the overnight. We had a 4.4 positive day. Now, we Ginger starts paying attention at 5 in our index. Think of 0 to 10 and negative 10. It can go above that or below that, but it very rarely does. 4.4 is the momentum? Is... Of that day. Okay. Now, that's not the total number, but that's 4.4 in one day. This, this is – we have, you know – we have historical data and then we have shorter term data that's more dynamic that's weighted heavier first okay so if you think about a, sh a sh think about a th 40 day or 50 day and 100 day moving average when they cross that's telling you something and then it's observing that that's not at all what this is but that's a simple example that most people will probably understand well your long term your long term static point where she will automatically make a sale is that almost not automatically but pretty close unless something changes is 5 and we had 4.4 in one day on that limit up move. Well, Ginger rips off a couple sales. I'm like, we're going to die. This is fun. Nice knowing you guys. And I go to sleep sort of for like an hour and a half. And then I start watching markets. And then soybeans go up, you know, 60 cents. And she doesn't sell it. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Mm. Well, why didn't she do that? Because the speed at which the dynamic, the faster one, is moving away from the slower one says this is going to keep continuing and then she's measuring like a rocket taking off from gravity is it going up too fast and is it going to roll over and hit the rocky mountains and establish a higher elevation or is it going to roll over and hit the ocean and keep sinking and then she's measuring that speed at which that's moving and velocity without getting too much into it well by the end of that day which was thursday i think we're friday today's friday thank you uh <laughs> She had flipped, that number had flipped from 4.4 positive to 2.2 negative for that input for that day. That is a 6.6 .6 number on our index where zero to five or zero to negative five is an absolutely huge number. And she did that in one day. Well, anybody that was watching markets saw it limit up and then 25 lower, right? So that flipped the momentum back into equilibrium. And what we, what we do at Go Farm Yourself is we just, we just watch momentum. Well, now all of a sudden, momentum's negative in corn, negative in soybeans. It's still positive in wheat. 
Um, and if you look at you look at the charts, it kind of reflects the price too, which is interesting. Well, our robot sold it, sold everything, and then the market just drops. Well, she hasn't covered yet, but she'll probably cover on Sunday or Monday morning if in the event we go lower. Some of those levels, she doesn't trade by levels or price. She trades by momentum. But if you put a human's eye on this too, you start looking at prices that, that matter. And I think the prices that matter in new, new crop, uh, soybeans is like $14.20 to $14. I think if you're below $14, um, you really need to pay attention. And you might need to get some sales off. And it, if it stabilizes there and starts going the other way, then it's back to what you said, Delaney, where there's, there's this, this wide range of air pockets that if it stabilizes here and the market finds a bunch of buyers and starts pushing it back the other way, mm-hmm. well, there's no more sellers pushing it down. And then momentum flips. Okay. Right? And so you've got that. And, and I put this out this morning that Dee's Corn 577 was kind of the line in the sand. And sure enough, shameless plug, 577 and a quarter was the number. Now, Ginger doesn't read that. I read that. So you combine the two and momentum's negative. So it's going to be really interesting what happens next week. Uh, Wheat is still positive in momentum and it will take another really big down day. Now, limits in in wheat are what, $1.50? $1.50 on Monday. So that could be really ugly. I promise you, if we go down $1.50, Ginger will be covering and buying it all with both hands. That's not an endorsement to trade it. Anything you do listening to this podcast, for me, you will lose all your money and then some. That's my disclaimer. The lawyers told me to say that, but I would never mind. (laughs) The reason the market would do that is to get rid of all the longs. Correct. Get rid of the momentum. So anybody that bought Limit Up yesterday thinking, you know, this has another leg up, which it certainly could, right? But if it... If you keep going lower, then all of a sudden that long goes, you know what? This is actually too much pain. I didn't think there was this much risk on the trade. And I think long-term we're going to $10. And that's one of the dangerous things about day trading and turning farmers into traders is now you're getting whipsawed like the rest of us, right? You produce a product, you have a margin. There are other ways to reown that product on the board. Delaney, you did it earlier Mm -hmm. this week where you bought a call. And I, I, just to set that up, like I had that mindset going into it, like, I could lose this money and that's okay. And I was okay with that, but I knew that that was a possibility. Obviously there's a lot of volatility in the markets. I knew that heading into it. So by no means I'm saying that's what other people should do, but and you made a decision based upon your own operation. Exactly. Correct. And volatility equals opportunity both ways. You have opportunity. I always love volatile markets versus slow markets because you can make money or lose money, right? The goal is to not lose money, but that creates opportunity that let's say, you know, something happens or, you know, God forbid that this drags on for a while. Well, wheat prices and corn prices and soybean prices might keep going higher. So that would be my take on it is, is that your marketing plan this year needs to be dynamic and you need to be a listener to the market that Mm -hmm. we talk about. Corey, I saw you check something off on your paper. Volatility is opportunity. That was going to be one of my final points and snark just said it. So that's what it was. Check it off. I did. So I, I enjoy uh, following Jeremy Davis on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and he put out a post about why Ukraine matters. So I'd encourage you to look it up. I think I'll uh, ask for his permission. I might put these into our show notes here at Farm for Profit. Again, this is tag team with Ag News Daily. Uh, this is a raw show that we put together. This yeah. was immediately to get to your ears with the information that we had on Friday, February 25th. It could change in a matter of hours. Uh, But that's what we're looking at today. So in this post about why Ukraine matters, 
It hits a lot of the things we talked about. It's the second largest country in Europe by area, has a population of over 40 million. That's more than Poland. Um, it goes down a state that there are so many precious metals in Ukraine that are important for trade. The ag experts, like we said, it is first in Europe in the terms of arable land. And then the black soil is 25% of the, U of the world's volume of black soil is in Ukraine. So it is super productive. It can meet, Ukraine can meet the food needs of over 600 million people. Wow. And to put that into perspective. That's two times the U.S. I was just going to say. Yeah. Wow. According to the 2020 census, the United States population is 329.5 million. So by perspective, that's why it's important to Putin. Taiwan, we know why that's important to China. For those that didn't cue in on this, agriculturally and resource-wise, that's why Ukraine is important, not to just Russia, but to everybody and why we did this episode and put it together. And I think that's probably a good place to wrap this thing up. So thanks for everybody that tuned in with us on TikTok and on Twitter spaces. Corey, Rupert, Tanner, anything else? We need to lead, lead with strength, I think, yep. from what we found. I think just prayers for everyone there, Absolutely. too. There is uh, families and, and children and Innocent and people that, that are caught in the crosshairs yes, right now. Some of those are the, the toughest yeah, videos to watch. Ukraine, for sure. Yeah. That's great. So, yes, <laughs> listeners, I, I appreciate you tuning in to this special episode of the Farm <laughs> Profit Podcast. Make sure you also check out Delaney at Ag News Daily. Ag News Daily listeners, we thank you. Yeah. Check out the Farm for Profit Podcast if you already haven't. GFY.ag is where you can learn about ginger. Correct, Snark? Correct. Not yet. The site will be live allegedly next Monday, but also the war will hopefully be over by then. Too. Yeah. You allegedly. need a Snake Island shirt for GFY.ag. That's right. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, that that's great. I appreciate you guys coming up to our studio and hanging out and delivering this message. I know it is timely. I know our listeners and farmers and business people need to have the latest information from sources that can be as close to independent as possible. So that's Thanks what we've got. If you guys want more, make sure you reach out to us. LLC at gmail.com. Delaney? Yep. Or at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or info at agnewsdaily.com. If yep. you want more, let us know. And uh, make it a good day. Make it a good week. Keep your head up. We'll get through it. <laughs>